You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Uh, tonight, I have a little something special. It is a pleasure to have Professor Michael uh, Mani coming straight to us from Australia. And it is a great honor to have him on the show because he is a tremendous presence in the field of the study of frogs. And he has had uh, a frog named after him after it was discovered. And he's also discovered quite a few frogs himself. And he's kind enough to come to us tonight directly from uh, Australia, even though we had... Uh, we had some connection issues, so uh, let's just get into it. Uh, Michael, how are you doing tonight? I want to thank you for uh, being here with me. Uh, g'day, Dan. Thanks very much for the opportunity to speak to you and, and, and your audience. It's it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I, I always like to do international calls, and it's it's funny because sometimes I find that the connection that I get with people outside of the U.S. is, is usually I get better I get better audio quality than I do with some callers here in the U.S., so... Uh, yep, you're loud and clear to me as well. And you're loud and clear on my end as well. So uh, why don't we get into it just, you know, for uh, the majority of my audience is in the US, but I have a lot of people in Australia as well. Why don't you introduce yourself t- uh, to all of us? Why don't you tell us uh, your story and, uh, you know, how your career progressed and how you ended up where you are today? Uh, yeah, well, um, I live on the east coast of Australia, so that's uh, um, the wettest part of Australia. Um, and uh, I was born and raised in Sydney, which is um, uh, one of our largest cities on the east coast. Uh, I I wasn't interested in frogs, particularly as a, a young person. I um, I mean, I dug them up in the backyard and 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 looked at them as a as a kid, and. Uh, it wasn't really until I was at university that I um, uh, sort of almost by good luck, um, certainly wasn't um, by any um, good management or, or direction of myself. I uh, was doing a, a project in my uh, third year of my undergraduate um, study at university here and uh, it was a course on um, cytology, cell biology, and we had to do a small project um, that we did ourselves. And so I, um, I, you know, I thought, oh, what will I do? That's sort of easy. And I thought, oh, I can go and collect some frogs and and um, work on those. And what I did was to look at the chromosomes of these frogs. And at that stage, that was around about 1970, 71 or 72. Um, there wasn't a lot known about the chromosomes of frogs around the world, really, but there was a couple of papers on Australian frog chromosomes. And uh, anyhow, I, I, I did my student project and got a most unusual result. Uh, you know, most frogs have um, 24 or 26 chromosomes, and I found some that had 48. And so the lecturer, obviously, the professor who was looking after the course said, wow, this is really quite surprising and unusual. And I ran out of time in the undergraduate course and at the end of the semester he said to me, well, what are you doing for the semester break? And he said, look, you really should come back into the lab and um, see if we can sort this out and uh, go and get some more frogs where you got them. And and so what what we'd found uh, and discovered was the, the first case in Australia of a, a thing called polyploidy where the chromosomes of the animal double totally. And at that stage, amongst the vertebrates, it was only the third known case of that in the world in, in vertebrates in, in a bisexual animal, not a parthenogenic animal. So uh, this, 
the professor then said to me, well, um, what are you doing next year? And I said, oh, I've got my appointment to teach. I was training as a teacher. And he said, oh, you, you really should think about, you know, going on and doing a higher degree. And, and I said, well, I can't really do that. I've got, you know, um, my future sort of sorted out and chatted about it for a while. And he then said to me, well, why don't you just study part time? And so that was the beginning of my journey on on frogs. And um, uh, for my doctorate, I then looked at the chromosomes, a pretty esoteric sort of thing, of Australian frogs, and um, and started with this major sort of discovery of of polyploidy, um, which is a sort of an important evolutionary um, sort of mechanism for for things to speciate and change. So. Uh, after finishing my doctorate, I um, I then um, I gave up teaching and uh, worked at the South Australian Museum for about uh, five or six years as a postdoctoral scientist. And um, after that, um, took a role as a, a lecturer at the University of Newcastle, where I've been for the last um, 30 years. Um, and through most of that time, I, I then have studied frogs. And that's... Um, pretty much my my story till now well it's it's still quite an amazing story and there, there's obviously more to it we're, we're going to get into i want to talk about some of the uh the cryopreservation methods to preserve uh, frogs that you've worked on but first i'd like to address some of the concerns that are unique to australian amphibians because obviously you're from australia and uh what are some concerns that are unique to Australian amphibians as opposed to amphibians on a more global level? Well, um, perhaps the, the greatest problem, and I'm sure most of your listeners would know, uh, for frogs around the world is the amphibian de disease, chytridiomycosis. Um, and uh, lots of people think that that was first discovered in South America. Certainly a lot of early reports um, of frog declines came out of South America, but the problem was actually first observed in Australia, um, perhaps not well reported in the literature, but um, uh, Australian frogs are, are, are quite unique. Um, they uh, Australia was part of the southern supercontinent of Gondwana, so 50 million years ago um, Australia was connected with... Um, South America, Antarctica, India in the southern supercontinent before it split up in plate tectonics. And so the origin of our frogs is southern. We don't have any salamanders or newts in Australia. We only have frogs, and our frogs have been evolving on the Australian island continent for at least 52 million years without any interaction from outside because we're an island continent. And uh, that, that has meant that our, our frogs um, have adapted to these, the changing climate of Australia over that time. So we have two major groups, the tree frogs, which are related to the tree frogs everywhere else in the world, and the ground frogs, which are called the southern ground frogs, related to the, the older group of South American ground frogs. We have about 250 species of frogs, um, and they're fairly even between the number of tree frogs and ground frogs. So right up until 1980, 
um, we hadn't recorded any extinction amongst our amphibian fauna in Australia, amongst our frogs. At the same time, since European settlement in Australia, we'd lost uh, about 29 species of mammal and about 29, 30 species of bird um, in about 100 to 150 years. So the impact of European settlement uh, in Australia was was quite marked on our, our birds and our, our mammals, but we, we didn't know of any extinction amongst our frogs. So frogs are pretty resilient sort of animals, and um, they were doing quite well. And then in 1980, a very important Australian frog, a unique frog, the gastric brooding frog, disappeared. Uh, this frog is sort of amazing um, because it's the only frog in the world where the female ingests her eggs um, and turns her stomach into a, a uterus, into a, a brood sac, and then about 30 to 40 days after she's ingested the egg, she she gives birth via the mouth. She vomits up her young. And so this was a truly amazing frog. And in 1980, it disappeared. Now, it was, I think, amongst, well, probably the only Australian frog that was being routinely monitored there are people doing um, studies at university monitoring frogs, but because the gastric brooding frog was such an important frog, the Queensland Museum would regularly monitor it in streams where it occurred. And when they didn't see it in the summer of 1980, they just thought, oh, well, we went there the wrong night. It hadn't rained. You know, maybe if we would have been there, you know, earlier in the season. As people do with frogs, sometimes you go and you don't see them and you think, oh, it's not that they've gone, it's just we're here at the wrong time with climate. And and so that happened for a couple of years until they sort of thought, no, something has really gone on. And what they then started to realise that there was a bunch of other frogs that occurred in the same streams where the gastric brooding frog occurred, which had also disappeared. And so that was the beginning of the global pandemic among frogs caused by chytrid, chytrid fungus. Uh, and it's... Uh, so from the perspective of world frogs, I mean, Australian frogs are unique. They're all endemic. And chytrid, unfortunately, starting in the early 1980s, has had a devastating impact on our, our frog diversity. We've now lost uh, nine species, and we have another 30 species which are in decline because of um, chytrid fungus. Do you have any idea how chytrid might have been introduced to Australia? No, there are various hypotheses. Um, I mean, uh, people in the early days thought that it may have come in with uh, um, the cane toad or with frogs that we brought to Australia for medical testing. So we, back in the old days, they used to use the African clawed toad colonies of Xenopus um, in uh, pathology laboratories for pregnancy testing, believe it or not. Um, that was the uh, the method that uh, pathologists would test whether a woman was pregnant um, using African clawed toads. And so people suggested it may have come in with those. Uh, look, we don't know uh, where it came in. And I think the spread of chytrid around the world has shown that um, this disease seems to be carried in water or, you know, perhaps on other stock around the world because it's spread just about everywhere in the last four years. I mean, it's... Um, 
it's a pretty nasty sort of pathogen from that perspective. It is amazing, though, especially when you think about an island nation like Australia or, I mean, anything, I guess, in Oceania, Australia, New Zealand, Tas- well, Tasmania is technically part of Australia, right? But you think of these places as being the last uh, stands, like the last bastions, because no- you know, nothing can just walk in there. And I, I'm actually quite surprised that Australia was the first place to detect uh, to detect Kittred, considering how rel- relatively isolated it is from a geographic perspective. Yeah, I, look, I think it's because it happened in such an amazing frog, and it wasn't long after that that the reports of the disappearance of the golden toad. So I think perhaps in South America and Central America, people were not seeing it. Um, it just that was it was detected first in Australia. And you're right. I mean, generally, the fact that we're an island continent and a long way away from everywhere else means that means that diseases and wildlife diseases don't get here easily. And our quarantine is generally very good. Um, and so, but anyhow, that's 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 what happened. And uh, and as we know, around the world now, you know, maybe a hundred or so amphibians have, have gone extinct because of Kittred. Yeah, it's it's a topic that I've addressed quite often on the show, and there's there's just so much more than meets the eye. I, I like here in the U.S., we'll get uh, little brief snippets of of stuff that'll come up in the news feed about Kittred and about the amphibian pandemic. But the more I've interviewed people and, and had conversations with experts and people who have studied it from the beginning, and it's it, it's amazing how complex. It is how the the whole situation has so many different angles to it, and there just doesn't seem to be any real one answer that you can we can do to resolve it. Well, uh, yeah, the solution to the to this problem is is really um, the thing that um, re- well, many amphibian biologists around the world are, are working long and hard for looking for the solution. I, I mean, my own story. Um, was really quite well you know like uh, when the first gastric brooding frog and we only had one species of gastric brooding frog and it was restricted really to one small mountain range like a 40 square kilometer area was its known distribution so that disappeared in 1980 and it wasn't accepted until about 1982 that there was a problem and as part of my uh, doctoral work I was actually um I was looking to collect all different types of Australian frogs to look at their chromosomes because that's what I was doing. And about 800 kilometres north of where the first gastric brooding frog occurred on another isolated rainforest mountain, I discovered the second gastric brooding frog. So we we then had two species of gastric brooding frog. And so that was in 1984, and it had gone extinct by 1986. Now you think, well, how did we let that happen? And I often wonder about that. Um, Essentially, uh, it was discovered and the authorities, the wildlife management authorities, um, do what, you know, is a normal thing to do. And I think your listeners would appreciate. They sort of said, oh, we've had this problem with gastric brooding frog, one disappearing, a very important frog. Nobody's going to go into this mountain range um, um, to touch this new species and we'll appoint our our expert ecologists to go and tell us what's going on. And so they set out a management plan where they appointed a particular research group with expertise in water quality to examine water quality and 
they appointed their own ecologists to do the monitoring. And um, they said, look, you can look at the chromosomes, but this is how we're going to do this. We're going to manage it. And unfortunately, um, part of that management strategy was not to say, let's get some of those frogs out there into an A-class zoo to captively breed them because um, they went extinct in, you know, in front of people, really. And so it was a very sad story. Uh, and so I then, after that, pretty much ended on uh, the next 20 years of my career trying to understand or do something about these declining frogs and, and what we can do, looking for the solution. Um, and in fact, uh, I set up the first experiment north of where the second gastric brooding frog occurred in what was called, or what we call the wet tropics world heritage area, where we started to see other frogs declining. And I set up experiments in the field where I sat or had a student and a colleague sit and watch the frogs that we knew were declining in the hope of trying to understand why they were declining. At that stage, we didn't know it was the disease. There were hypotheses about um, ultraviolet radiation causing frogs to die, um, pollution, all of the standard things, but it didn't make sense to us because we were working in pristine rainforests. So I set up an experiment where we sat and looked at the frogs that were, you know, declining. And we actually saw during that experiment the first animals dying in front of us, frogs actually dying. Uh, we took them to pathology. And in fact, that was the beginning of the report and the discovery of chytrid in Australia, that, that it was a disease. Um, I handed across the animals to pathologists who eventually reported that. So, I mean, I had a sort of really important basal position in, in trying to understand this problem, at least in Australia. Um, so it's been an interesting story. And then after that, my, my work has been really trying to look for a solution to this problem. On a personal level, I mean, you, let's, you, you discovered a new species of frog that was somewhat similar to one that had been recently declared extinct, only to have it become extinct within a few years of your discovering that. I mean, if, if you don't mind, I'm just curious, on, on a personal level, what, what must that have been like? That must have been uh, quite an experience. Well, it was sort of devastating. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a... <laughs> experience is an unusual word. Dan, I... Yeah, look, it... Um, it, it in the context of the time trying to explain to conservation managers um, in Australia, that's government departments. Uh, we don't have a Department of Fisheries and Wildlife like you have in, in, in the States. We, each of our states has a National Parks and Wildlife Service like your National um, Forests. Uh, um, and the National Parks and Wildlife Service are the people who look after conservation management of our native fauna and flora. And so... Uh, you know, they they were the ones who, first of all, needed to be convinced that there was a problem. Um, secondly, um, you know, other scientists didn't accept that there was a problem because I'm sure it happens everywhere in the world that the moment a person working on one group of animals steps up at a conference and says, hey, look, we've got a major problem. Our frogs are all disappearing and declining. Other biologists go, ah, oh, okay, so the frog biologists want more of the money, <laughs> the research money. And then they say to you, well, where's the proof? 
and you say, well, look, we're out in the field. We can't find certain frogs, and we actually can see, you know, that they're disappearing. And they go, well, where's your replicated studies? And you go, guys, where's your replicated studies for the other 500 species of anything? I mean, it's not the way we work. I mean, you know that. But that's the sort of challenge that, that we face, trying, first of all, to convince authorities that this is real. And... Um, and then actually moving on from there, I mean, unfortunately, at the end of the day, um, chytrid has uh, uh, been like that around the world. You know, it, it's caused major declines. What about some other factors in Australia? And here in the U.S., we had some wildfires that were in the in the West which were extremely devastating. But in Australia, you experienced within the past, um, I guess it was the past few years as well, you had some very, very horrific wildfires. What were some of the effects that the wildfires had on the native Australian amphibians? Uh, yes, Dan, we had um, uh, the worst fires we've ever had. Um, massive amounts of um, our hardwood forest burnt in one summer the fires lasted for six months they weren't burning you know, continuously all the time and different parts but over a six-month period we lost about well fires burned about a third of our hardwood forests on the east coast of australia so i'm talking about you know uh, a distance of um, over 1500 kilometers um, from north to south and about 100 kilometers wide the area of, of forests so, um, look, uh, we really still don't know um, how bad that fire was for our... We've had one spring and summer after it, a good wet spring and summer, and we've been out monitoring our frogs to try and understand and looking as many species as we could. I mean, the good news is that we... Um, we don't seem to have lost any species because of the fire. There were a couple of species that had very narrow ranges and the fire overlapped almost 100% with their range. We've gone back into those forests and uh, the burnt forests and we can find the frogs. Their numbers are reduced, but they are still there. So um, what what the long-term implication um, is in terms of the reduction and how how many years it may take for the populations to recover, we don't know. But good news, we haven't lost any species as, that we know of. And um, the frogs are still there and they came out and bred the summer after the fires. It just looks like it'll be a long period of recovery. So, yeah, fires and frogs are a big issue here at present, but trying to understand the impact of fire is a difficult scientific question, really. Is there a greater density of species in a certain region of Australia? Meaning, obviously, you're on the eastern coast of Australia, which is more uh, wet, as opposed to central Australia and western Australia. If this had been an event that had happened in eastern Australia, would there have been more species affected? Or is the, the density of species sort of uniform throughout the country? Oh, no, Dan, you're absolutely right there. Um, um... In general, the general pattern is that the wetter and warmer um, environments in Australia have the highest density and diversity of frogs. And as you go to the hotter and drier um, habitats, you get fewer and fewer. So 
We do have frogs right out in our central deserts, the hottest deserts in the world. Well, as hot as other deserts in the world, that's for sure. Um, and they are burrowing frogs. They spend most of their time under the ground and only come to the surface after there's a lot of rain. But the diversity is very low. It's, you know, a handful of species that can do that. And by the time we get to the east coast where our wet forests are, uh, in the, the highest diversity of frogs are, are in the place called the Wet Tropics World Heritage Area, which is subtropical and tropical rainforests in the northeast coast of Australia, right adjacent to the Great Barrier Reef on the, on, on the land. And um, so uh, you get 20 or 30 species of frog in those forests and then as you come down the east coast 24 30 species is not uncommon in the in the hardwood forests right down the east coast in the better places um, look australia is not a mega diverse place for um, frogs because we are a hot dry continent um, i mean there's probably three times as many species of frog in papua new guinea to our north which is all tropical um, so but nonetheless, we still have quite a diversity and the greatest diversity is in the wet and warm forests of the East Coast, yeah. And that's where the fires occurred more towards the south. They didn't, the fires didn't occur in the tropical rainforests of the north, but they did occur in the, the sclerophyll forest, we call it, the eucalypt forest, the hardwood forest of the, of the east and southeast of the country. Uh, I see. I see. So it definitely was a good thing that it stayed where where it was, as opposed to uh, where it could have been. Well, the the problem for the wet tropics is uh, climate change. There's very good modelling done by people from the university in in the north um, near the rainforest, uh, James Cook University. It's called, which has done a lot of climate modelling, and, and their fear is that many of our frogs in in the Tropical and subtropical rainforests are threatened because um, their, their habitat is disappearing because of climate change. I want to ask, and um, we touched on before about how you had discovered a new species of frog, you discovered a new species of gastric brooding frog, but you discovered quite a few more species, and you, you actually had someone discover a species and name one after you. That's, um, that's Monty's toad, right? The uh, species that was named after you? Yeah, that was uh, quite an honour. Uh, one of my postgraduate students who, uh, look, believe it or not, as things happen in the world, like less than eight kilometres from the university where we work was this frog that we'd missed for 20 or 30 years. <laughs> um, and uh, he was doing some monitoring work um, at that site and um, came across this uh, a little ground-dwelling frog about a centimetre and well, half half an inch to an inch long and little round squat animal that lives on uh, a special habitat we call the sand beds and aquifer. And, um, yeah, so he was so nice to name it after me. That was a, yeah, a great honour. That's incredible. Uh, can, can you just give us some descriptions of, of maybe just two or three of the species that you have discovered yourself and um, what they're like? How, what, how, how did you manage to dis well, just start with one. How did you manage to discover it? And uh, what, what was the process like in terms of having it recognised as its own species, as, as a new species, I should say? Yeah, look, um, people, I think your listeners should know um, that discovering new species 
is rarely that you go somewhere and you see a frog that no, you know is immediately different. You've got your field guides and you know your animals and you get somewhere and you see something and go, that's totally different. That, that, that doesn't happen very often. Um, my work has all been, because I started as a geneticist and I am still a geneticist at heart, uh, the work I do normally relies on testing the species definition by knowing whether it's got a gene pool which is shared with other species which are similar to it or not. So frogs are very cryptic. They all look, well, at least close relatives. They look close, close relatives amongst frogs can be pretty hard to tell apart if you look at a field guide. And so what I do is collect samples of tissues of populations and I look at the genetics. And when I know that the genetics tell me there's no gene flow between populations that may look very much the same, I go, ah, that one's a new species because it's got a unique gene pool. And so what I do is test the definition of a species, the biological species definition, um, the evolutionary species definition, which is uh, defined by genetics at the end of the day, whether they're capable of interbreeding. And that's what we do. And so uh, one, of the, one of the nicest um, frogs I found was a desert frog um, from almost di diagonally the opposite end of the continent where I live, so 3,000 kilometres on the other side of the continent, right on the edge of the desert. Um, uh, so we were a long way away from anywhere. We, we were there after a cyclone came across the coast. There was a lot of rain and the desert frogs came up out of the ground and there was this frog that we saw for the first time and the moment we saw it, we went, that's new. What is that? Nobody has ever seen that before. And I, I suspect it because you just had to be there when the rains came in the desert and they came up out of their burrows and breed and they disappear in two or three days. So, And um, that was a frog called Neobatricus fulvus. It's a stunningly beautiful frog. It's uh, sort of almost a claret wine red colour with beautiful um, golden yellow markings. Uh, it's about the size of a golf ball, a little, little round bowering frog. And um, we knew it was different the moment we saw it because it was, you know, it was just so different in its colouring and its marking to other members of the genus Neobatricus. And um, that was also the genus that has polyploid frogs in it, so we were able to look at its chromosomes and know that it had different chromosomes to other members of its genus. So, so that was one frog that was really like the moment we saw it, we knew it was different, that was great fun. That must have been incredible, seeing something that was completely new I mean, visually, I understand what you say about the about discovering things by um, studying their genetics and finding differences and in their inability, you know, their uh, abilities to interbreed. But there must have been something to really put eyes on a frog that no one had ever seen before, or maybe have but never identified it as something unique. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's the joy of discovery, and that that does stay with you for life. But for the other fifteen or so species of frog I've discovered, it's been a, it's been the Oh, it's a slow heart. It's 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 the lab work of collecting the tissues, doing the genome sequencing or the DNA sequencing, and and then um, quite often we have to go back to the field because we are we work in a system where we go out, collect tissues, 
spring back and do the comparisons and then you go, uh-uh, something's happening here. Better go back out into the field because we've got to get more of those or more tissues from those from this area and the areas in between because when we test the evolutionary species definition, we actually got to find out whether there's any hybrid zone or a place where genes are being swapped. So it's a, it, it's, it doesn't happen overnight or it doesn't happen at the immediate looking at a frog in the field and saying, I think that's a new one. You know, it's, it's, a, slow, um, it's a slow process that sometimes can take several years um, as we gather the data. It's still fun to think about it being dramatic, though. I know. I just, I know. I've always had a thing for that. Uh, just, I've always had a thing for uh, like uh, cryptid species that hadn't uh, been identified, and I guess it's just my crude way of of, of fantasizing oh, yeah, no, about it. Uh, you yeah, know, uh, um, Australia is one of those few places in the world where you can still come and find new things. I mean, it's you know two hundred years of or more of European settlement and you know, modern science, but nonetheless, it's a very big country and there's still a lot of, um, a, a lot of places where, where people are few and far between. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great place to work in from that perspective. Yeah. One of my childhood fantasies, which sort of made it into adulthood was, uh, I always wanted to see a live thylacine, even though that they've been declared extinct. I, uh, I, been kind of obsessed with that since I was a kid. And, uh, and I always hope that one day somehow somewhere someone will find a live one, but I, I know that that's not very likely. Well, that's every Australian biologist dream. <laughs> I must say, yeah, that's how iconic and, and, and such a sad story, you know, like a, an animal that was really just shot into extinction because it was a predator of people's, you know, fowls and, and farm animals, um, I, it just uh, like an incredibly, yeah, as I say, a, a sad reflection on, uh, well, what used to happen to 150 years ago when there wasn't such an appreciation of unique animal diversity and, and, and its function. So, And sometimes I wonder whether we've got any better. I mean, but anyhow, we all know about the debates in ecosystem management and conservation biology. They go on and on. No, that's very true. That's very true. I while we're on the the uh, the, the topic of conservation, though, and I like to bring this into the, the, the uh, genetics discussion. You've developed methods for um, cryopreservation to preserve the genetic material of frogs that might be endangered or threatened so that we may use that in the future to i guess what what would you what what would you do would you resurrect them would you captive breed them like what would you tell us about the whole project why collect the genetic material of frogs and what what's the plan for the future if need be yeah okay so um as i've explained if you if you if you step back to the mid 1980s or the the early 1990s before before there was a publication that says amphibians are declining because of chytrid fungus, and we worldwide, we didn't know why frogs were disappearing. They were disappearing in Central America, and then it started to happen in Europe, and it was happening in Australia and other parts of the world. And at the time, as a field biologist going out working on frogs, we didn't know which ones were going to go extinct next. We could do some risk assessment and we didn't know the cause, and so we watched four or five species just disappear within a four or five year period. And so 
the team I was with at the university, I was with really one other colleague, we said, look, we can't prevent this, but so what we should do is we we should start a genome bank. We should save the genes of these frogs for the future. And you mentioned the thylacine because it's a classic a classic case, if we had somebody who'd preserved some genetic material, modern technology, maybe not right now, but in the next, I think within the next 20 years or modern technology will mean that we can use those genes to bring back a species. Now, that, that's that been proven, the black ferret in, in America is an example of that, where stored genes have been used to restore genetic diversity of a species and bring it back, really. Um, and so while it seemed a pretty crazy idea, um, there was a part of it that was not so crazy, like almost every, not almost, every big capital city in the world, and at least in the developed world, has sperm banks for humans and infertility. I mean, we can cryopreserve sperm and we do it for thousands of humans who have infertility problems. And we thought, well, why can't we do this for frogs? And so we just did some simple experiments on the the bench and used the same recipes. You know, we didn't try to reinvent the wheel. We used the same recipes um, that are used for cryopreserving uh, cattle, human, uh, bird sperm, chicken sperm. We just used some frogs, got their sperm cryopreserved it, um, then defrosted it to see that they were still motile, and we went, yeah, we can do this. So we then got a PhD student working on that, a doctorate student whose whole uh, project was to develop the, the protocols for, for freezing the sperm of frogs, and we started our, our frozen gene bank, um, and we, we still maintain that. We, we've got frozen sperm now from something like uh, I think nine or ten critically endangered species. Um, and and it was an insurance policy as far as we were concerned. We said, look, we okay, we, we're not able to use that sperm yet to prove we can bring back a species, but theoretically that's possible. But if you haven't got it, you, you've got no chance. Of course, happening parallel to this was um, – Another, uh, you know, as you'd expect, the, the groups of people who work in zoos quickly realised that the disaster happening to frogs meant that they should bring them into captive husbandry. And so in Australia, we have uh, three or four species of frog that we now only have because they're in zoos in captive husbandry. Like uh, we've got this beautiful little black and yellow frog we call the corroboree frog just a stunningly beautiful little frog from our alpine areas. And it really only exists now because it was brought into zoos for captive husbandry. Now, one of the things we point out is that, well, captive husbandry is great. It saves species from going extinct. But you lose a lot of genetic diversity as a species declines. And most captive husbandry colonies are depauperate genetically. They just are totally inbred. And so we also argue that preserving the genes well before species decline is a critical genome bank of biological diversity. So that's that's what we that's what we that's what we set out to do, and that's why we did it. Um, and it, and it hasn't gone away as being an important tool. And we are now starting to see for the first time people come to the genome bank and saying. 
do you have sperm of so-and-so and when was it collected and where and has it got different genetic diversity to add into our captive husbandry um, populations? So is that does that help explain it, Dan? That helps explain it more than perfectly. I uh, it, it's it's interesting because I never would have even thought about using that genetic material to enhance existing captive bred populations. I never would have even thought of that. That's incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, and then we got involved in a what's called a de-extinction project, and that's a project we actually tried to bring back the gastric brooding frog. Um, we didn't succeed, um, but technologically uh, we got a long way. So if if you want to uh, do a Google search or your listeners do a Google search for the project Lazarus, um, sounds a little bit offensive to some people, but, you know, rising the, the dead to life. So what we actually had, uh, not at, not from our own collection, but uh, uh, another researcher had frozen some gastric brooding frogs when they were working on them in the 1970s in a lab in Adelaide. And when we found that they had some carcasses in a in a freezer, we asked, could we have access to them? And um, we went through a process of seeing whether there was any live cells in those frozen, like there was any cells we could bring back to life in tissue culture, and that didn't work. And then we went through a process where we took the nuclei out of cells from some of those carcasses and injected it into fresh eggs from a donor frog. And we turned back on the nucleus of the gastric brooding frog in those eggs. It, it actually, the, the, the DNA was, um, uh, I don't know what you say, reinvigorated. No, it, it was, it actually started to divide. And we got as far as a blastocyst, about uh, 180 cells, before they would die. So, and we've done genetic work to, to know that the DNA had replicated. Um, so we got along the way to bringing back a species that's extinct using these sorts of what are called assisted reproductive technologies. So I, I'm firmly convinced that these gene banks will work in the future. And for some things, they are our only insurance policy. Um, it's a sad thought, but um, I'd rather know that the future has the possibility to say the genome's stored than, than to say, oh, well, it's gone forever. We'll never be able to do anything. That's interesting. I, here in the U.S., at least in the, the captive hobby, uh, especially with dart frogs, there's always a concern about the genetic diversity within the captive community. And obviously, people who captive breed amphibians for pleasure, myself included, there's an effort made to keep track of the genetics, meaning where did a particular line come from, when was it imported, which location, etc. But it's not controlled in the same rigorous fashion that I think the scientific community would, would do so. Do you think that there would at some point become like a master stud book for all of these endangered amphibians that people around the world might be able to use as a as a guide or a reference in terms of creating, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this, um, creating a captive environment that goes around the world that is kept track of and, and, and organized as opposed to just being 
uh, haphazard, meaning someone breeds two related pairs together and then they don't know where the offspring go. I mean, is that a, is that a realistic goal for the future that there might be some sort of universal genetic bank that anyone can draw out of to enhance the genetics of a, of a captive population? Well, I think it's a goal, and and it's certainly possible. And there are moves afoot um, in that direction, so that um, the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, um, has uh, well, they 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 once had a declining amphibian task force, and they still do. So, amphibian biologists from around the world trying to deal with uh, the mainly the chytrid. Um, pandemic in frogs and so spawned out of that group and spawns <laughs> sorry for the pun out of that group is a group on on captive husbandry and a group now on genome banking so at international conferences like the world conference of herpetology there was a whole special conference section uh, um, uh, you know with nine or ten speakers and and seminars and um, uh, plenary Dealing with dealing with genome banks for frogs, so that there are several very important institutions in in America. So um, the San Diego Zoo, uh, one of the first institutions in the world to have a frozen zoo, and they've had that, as I think, for greater than twenty years. I mean, well before we were uh, even thought about cryopreserving the sperm of frogs in Australia. Um, the the um, the frozen zoo at San Diego was was established um, in the Beckman Institute, I think. And so, yeah, there are international moves to establish just what you thought about a, a repository, and then all of that is um, catalogued, and so we know what is there and what's available. And one of the big issues in the future will be one of the things you touched on is the governance of that, like who will have access, when when will that access be given, and who makes these decisions about, well, the last genetic store of a species which is now extinct in the wild, who will who will be given access to bring that back, and uh, perhaps to herpetoculturists to breed up those animals. Um, so a little aside, a little story. When frogs were disappearing in in Queensland, which is a uh, the the state to the north of where I am. One of the management authorities there said at one stage, well, why don't we just collect some and send them to Europe where there are great herpeculturists, people who can breed just about anything. And, and sadly, what all of the Australian amphibian biologists in the room said, it wasn't all, I mean, it's only about four or five of us. We said, oh, no, no, we can do it here. We don't need to send them to Germany or somewhere. And we made a mistake. <laughs> we should have sent them offshore, you know and um, established a lot of husbandry elsewhere. And we wouldn't have lost those species if we'd have done that. So, yeah, there are, there are um, mechanisms happening to establish genome banks worldwide and then mechanisms where people can access them. And as I say, the governance around that is something that's, uh, I think it'll take a bit of time to sort out. It's not quite there yet. I could definitely see the serious hobbyists being interested in something like that, not only to enhance the, the genetic viability of their own, uh, you know, their, their own frogs, but going in a way that you could benefit 
wild frogs as well by just just keep doing something so simple, just keeping track of your genetics. I mean, if we can keep a stud book of, of horses or, or dogs or any other domestic animal, it doesn't seem that unrealistic that we couldn't uh, keep track of, of, of frog species. Uh, look, um, man, I, I did, it's a message so close to my heart. As we look, scientists are all the same. You've got to say to governments, we need money to do things. You've got to have money to maintain these things. And people go, oh, man, that's going to be so expensive. And you say, look, we've got 240 species of frog. And I can go to a genome bank, uh, you know, a sperm bank in my own town for infertility that's got 1,500, you know, um, male sperm, you know, stored. And I go, come on, we can't even do it for 400 of our wildlife, which is unique, found nowhere in the world. And you can't replace it. When it's gone, you can't make a new species. And they go, oh, 400. And you go, man, that's one, you know, like liquid nitrogen cylinder. And then you split that so you don't have all your eggs in one basket, to, you know, to put it that way. I mean, but still authorities seem to think, oh, man, this is, this is so expensive. And you're going, no, 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 this is, this is a cheap insurance policy. And, um, and you should take it. And then the second point um, I've done a lot of work with citizen science. We are now we are now using citizen scientists to do a large amount of our monitoring after the fires. Um, we're using citizen science people to captively breed and look after our animals. Um, I think in Australia we're starting to realise that we've got to do this. It's not going to be done by universities or museums. It's just they just don't have the resources to do it. And when you when you involve citizens in doing this, you you build a constituency. These are people who vote. These are people who say to wildlife authorities, "We we don't want this to disappear, or you know, we don't want these bad things to happen, and we'll do something about it." You know, we're prepared to put our time in, and um, I think that's a growing movement all around the world. Um, the involvement of citizen science is certainly growing here in Australia. I could see the private sector also being very, very interested in this. Like I, like I said before, the, the unique thing about Australia also is obviously Australia has some very, very strict import-export issues with, uh, with native species, and right, rightfully so. I could imagine certain interests in the private sector, whether it's zoos or, or whomever, being interested in... I guess going almost like a tit for tat, meaning uh, you know we would be willing to uh, pay for cryopreservation of X amount of species if we're entitled to X amount of that genetic material to further our own programs. You know, I mean, to me at least, that would seem like a smart way to go about it. Like here, here in the U.S., we have the AZA, which is essentially a network of accredited zoos, and I read there. I guess their master document about amphibian husbandry, and they themselves openly acknowledge in that document the contributions of the private hobbyists to you know, furthering the, the breeding and the care and the understanding of the captive husbandry of certain species. So, I mean, when you put it like that, it really doesn't seem like it's that unrealistic goal. I mean, I I would personally rather rely on private hobbyists than government funding that has to be divided between a, a whole other host of things. I don't know what your opinion on that is but that's just my my two cents yeah you know i you, you're dead right australia is um perhaps a little bit unique um uh, in this area we've had very strict rules for a long long time about um collection 
and export of animals from Australia. And I don't quite know deep philosophically why that is beyond not wanting people to be out plundering, you know, sometimes rare rare animals to send overseas. And, and we do have that. I mean, every now and then in our media, we we get, uh, you know, reports of, you know, the, the uh, um, quarantine or the the border, you know, the, the police at the airports have intercepted a shipment of, you know, Australian reptiles that are, were being sent overseas or people secreting them on their bodies on planes and these sorts of things. And, and people get quite big fines uh, in Australia for trafficking in wildlife. Uh, and then the other side of that is that that then prevents, um, you know, the very keen amateur person from access. But it's not it's not as bad as it seems. I mean, in in New South Wales, where I am, herpiculturists can get a license to collect, you know, almost every um, species is on the list except some critically endangered ones, which the authorities don't want people going into the field and collecting. So the problem there, I think, is clearly that um, uh, keepers and, and, and breeders like to have the rarest things, and that can be a danger if they go into the field to collect those. But in general, it's not as hard as it seems um, for people to be involved. Uh, and I, as I say, there's a, a growing um, citizen science movement in Australia to be involved. And in fact, some some of our prominent biologists are you know, occasionally go onto the media to say it's about time we had Australian animals as pets. So, you know, some of our mammals are wonderful animals, there, but really we, we don't have them as pets. We have cats and dogs and not our own native animals, you know. And so they point out that this would be a way of helping us save them and understand them and get a greater appreciation if they were made more available to people. So I think that's certainly possible for frogs, and I think it's something that's gradually happening. I can't see it as being something other than beneficial, particularly considering that things have been, I guess the, the analogy I'd use, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not pulling at straws with this, but when I was a kid and you went to the, the beach, there would be a souvenir shop and the souvenir shop would have a, a glass bottle that was filled with layers of differently colored sand. So the bottom layer would be blue, then it would be purple, then it would be red. Now that was great until you shook the bottle up. And you lost all that, <laughs> you lost all that striation. And no matter what you did, there was no going back. There was no reversing that sequence of events to go back and have this purely, perfectly defined layers of, of sand. So in, in many ways, the issues with, with wildlife and, and amphibians and, and everything in general has sort of been shuffled by human intervention, whether it's, uh, you know, climate change or, or disease or natural things. Regardless, all these factors that we're aware of now seem to have really shuffled the deck. So, so how do we make sense out of that? And I could see that the, the, the private sector, people who are hobbyists, people who want to be citizen scientists, could contribute to that. As long as it becomes an environment that is, uh, I guess, welcoming. And by that, I mean, one of the goals of this show has always been to bridge the gap between different, different sectors of people who are enthusiastic about amphibians. And I think that private hobbyists, I think that scientists, I think that conservationists, I think that we should all be on the same page because ultimately we still have the same affinity for these animals. And I feel like by 
building bridges, I mean, like you said about, about government and policy and, you know, uh, taking a species and trying to lock it away so that no one ever goes near it, then it's just like putting it in a box and, and just kind of sealing it away and nothing's going to happen with it. I mean, in Australia, is there a general consensus among the population in terms of how important these things are? Or is there a, is there a disconnect? between, you know, academia and the average person or conservationists and the average person? Well, sadly, I think it's the latter, that there is a disconnect. Um, um, probably like the States, um, most people in the cities live in little boxes and go to the mall uh, to shop and, and life seems to be built around, uh, yeah, <laughs> consumerism in the mall. And um, we have beautiful national parks, as you do, and um, many people use them, but um, it really is a fight for the conservation-minded people with the government to uh, to maintain um, our conservation status and to put the emphasis on there. And so giving opportunity for for people to to be involved with wildlife See, they won't be interested unless they've got that opportunity. So I think you touch on on that as well. You see, in Australia, when I was a kid, we could collect tadpoles and keep them. And now, like, there's a certain amount of mad bureaucracy. Kids can't collect tadpoles and, you know, people start to worry about has an ethics com committee approved this? And you go, wow, oh, you're you kidding me, you know? Like, just let kids catch tadpoles, put them in a bottle and watch them for a few weeks and let them go at the creek, you know? This is how they will learn to love uh, nature and um, and understand it. And so we, we are in this really sort of awkward situation where we've made some things just too difficult. And, and you know, it's, it's yeah, it's not right and it's got to end really. But, um, yeah, the, I think like everywhere in the world, well, at least in Australia, um, we have many, many people who are, uh, you know, what we call green and they vote green and they're interested in the environment, but um, uh, it, it plays a second fiddle to other more important things um, like economy and, and mining and a few other things. So, yeah, it's a sad, sad story, but that's the way it is for us at present. I mean, you only have to look at our stance on climate change, which is just uh, arcane, you know, and that's that's where our government is at present. They, they can't even bring themselves to believing that it's reality you know they're deniers and you go well what the heck you know so yeah we we face some major challenges uh, at that level yeah i think that people people like to have peace of mind and when you think about it every everything in life boils down to peace of mind am i happy with myself at the end of the day and in terms of what you just said about people wanting to be green and supportive that's great until it becomes difficult for some people at least, that's at least my opinion. And I, I feel like a lot of people want to make these efforts, but I feel like many of the efforts are just half steps just so that they can sleep at night. I mean, I hope that's not me sounding too cynical, but I just feel like it's it's a lot harder to do these things than, than they're made out to be. Oh, yeah, I think that's certainly the case. Although I look at uh, the younger generation and the voice of the younger generation gets it. And they say it much clearer than an old scientist like me, um, and it comes from the heart. And uh, so there is hope for the future. And what is that wonderful frog calling in the background all the time? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, it's, it's one of my, uh, let me look around. 
I've got my headphones on here, so I can't quite hear. Oh, it's one of my Epipeda babies, my uh, phantasmal dark <laughs> fox. Yeah, I don't normally record in my frog room, but uh, my 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 studio, which is essentially my closet, my daughter had to do a virtual class up there. She had a, a virtual dance class, so I came down here to my frog room. So I'm surrounded by all my uh, my uh, little frog friends here. <laughs> so yeah, they kind of go. Yeah, off. they're doing a great job. Yeah, they're it's doing a, a great job. They're <laughs> and people, it's it's about just so everyone knows, it's about nine nine. It's about nine p.m. Well, by the time you're hearing this, it's be on a weekend, but it's nine p.m. Tuesday here. And it is, uh, what time is it, Michael, by you in Australia? Uh, we're at about 11 o'clock in the morning. On Wednesday. So <laughs> so it's it's the, the substantial time difference here. But um, it's, it's, it's lights out here. I have everything on timers, so everything's starting to go off here. But that doesn't stop them from calling after it goes pitch dark. But normally I, I do it upstairs, so I don't have them going nuts in the background. But sometimes they just can't help it. Yep, that's wonderful. Great yeah. background noise. <laughs> it's it is it is enjoyable. I um, it, it's interesting what you said about legislation and bureaucracy and all that. And and here in the U.S. and I, I'm just I'm just going to give my opinion on this because we're coming from do, from two different continents and there seem to be more similarities than I would have uh, than I would have realized. But here in the U.S., there's a lot of legislation in the works and things that have been changed recently to prevent things like invasive species and disease and whatnot. And I think that what happens is, just like you said, when when you remove the human interaction from the equations, so much get lost. And I feel like rather than outright banning our rights to own certain things and to work with certain species and to breed certain species as just as private citizens... Let us have them. Let us work with them. Let us develop captive breeding programs. Let us teach others what we've learned in a way that's responsible. And it just seems like policy here in the U.S. is just so opposed to that. And I can understand keeping the average person who's not really well-versed in amphibian husbandry and, and, and practice, I can understand that portion you know, being a potential issue. But I don't understand why we're not allowed to work with certain species, at least under some, you know, some reasonable amount of guidance. Everything just has to be so convoluted and difficult that just to even look at a frog in the wild is a process. Yeah, Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, it is very similar. And um, for the same reasons that you expressed, we, uh, Australia has learned the lesson about invasive species uh, we have one invasive amphibian, that's the cane toad, and, um, you know, it's now responsible for bringing many of our native reptiles mainly towards decline because they die when they eat them, you know, and it's a classic example worldwide of, you know, not not using something like a cane toad uh, as a biological control method that was a total failure. So, um, yeah, there are reasons why the authorities are very careful about you know, particularly animals from other countries coming in and getting loose, and that happens um, from husbandry. But there should be no reason why the authorities should prevent citizens from enjoying and keeping native animals. And, look, if they did it while they were very common and it's not a problem, then they won't have a problem in the future if they do need to captively breed when 
when frogs or whatever other animals are start to decline. Um, and they'll have a group of people who are really interested in knowing. So we, we have an interesting process here in, in um, New South Wales or in Sydney. There's a there's a very popular group, a community group called the Frog and Tadpole Study Group. And about a, a decade ago, um, the authorities got in touch with this um, group of citizens and said, look, what happens is um, the national parks, we get called out to uh, uh, supermarkets and um, the supermarkets say, look, we open up the banana boxes that have come from the tropics and they've got all these frogs in them. Well, not all these, you know, a couple of frogs. But over a couple of weeks or two, there'd be, you know, maybe 10 or 20 frogs that, that would be shipped in, in vegetables that are coming from other parts of the continent, mainly from the north. And for a while they thought, oh, we'll put them in boxes and mail them back. But the Frog and Tadpole Study Group said, no, 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 look, we've got lots of members and our members can take these and breed them. I mean, rather than euthanizing them because they're, you know, they're out of place or trying to work out where they came from. And so, so they have a system where any members of the group, the Frog and Tadpole Study Group, they put a list up monthly of what frogs have come in from what they call um, frog recovery and, and people get to keep them and, and, and maintain them. So it's a really neat sort of idea. It stops animals from unnecessarily being killed and it introduces a lot of people to captive husbandry. I think that's wonderful. I would I would love it if we had something. I mean, I'm sure we do at different different parts of the country. Obviously, I can't speak for every part of the country, but I would definitely love to be involved with something like that if that was if I was presented uh, uh, excuse me, if I was presented with an opportunity like that. Yeah, well, it it, it works here and it, they're mainly common frogs that come what they're called banana box frogs. I mean, they come in other vegetable packs as well, but yeah, they're mainly little green tree frogs and they're not uncommon, but it still gives some people a great joy to have them, like your frogs behind you there, in a, an aquarium and breeding and, 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 and really enjoying them. My, yeah, my frogs bring me a, a tremendous amount of enjoyment for, for a number of reasons. And on a personal level, I feel beholden to give something back. So I'll, I'll, I go to the local uh, elementary school once a year and I'll just do a brief half an hour talk uh, we usually do it in, in the winter time here while the while the kids are inside they have uh, parents from the community who will come in with a particular hobby or interest so i do frogs and i feel like that's just one simple way that i can offer a return to the greater community in exchange for the things that just bring me so much joy but i don't know that's... yeah that's great well i've um i should shout a, uh, give a shout out to all my friends in north america i i I used to run, um, before COVID, um, uh, field projects for Earthwatch, if you know um, Earthwatch uh, out of um, Massachusetts. And so I had many North American volunteers come and work with me in the rainforests of New South Wales um, for 14 days on a frog field trip, looking at frogs and doing our work to understand the declining frogs. So to all of those who came along to Earthwatch trips with me, G'day, and I hope you're going well. Yeah, I, I love it, the transatlantic, uh, transatlantic, well, no, I shouldn't say transatlantic, I should say transcontinental partnership, because technically, you're, technically we get to you from the Pacific, so I apologize for that. I, I want to yep. ask you one last question before we, uh, before we uh, break. You have a very unique method of uh, calling for frogs. You, you go out into the field and you actually call yourself, right? 
Yeah, Dan, I, I don't think this is unique. I think every <laughs> I think every Australian frog biologist does this. I, I've not worked enough with foreign frog biologists, but I'm sure they do it too, don't they? Uh, I've done a few citizen science uh, projects in, in my years, but I've never actually seen anyone do that. I'm sure that they do. I just, I personally haven't ever encountered it. Uh, look, it's it's really quite... Um... It's really quite simple. Uh, I mean, uh, when we're in the field, we can use a tape recorder or, you know, a digital recorder or your phone these days to play back the call of a frog. And quite often that'll encourage a male who's quiet to call back. You know, the frogs, most of our frogs are territorial. They hear another male and they think, oh, there's another male in my territory. I, I better call back or I better join in or I'll miss the girl or whatever. And so some of our frogs in audible, you know, uh, uh, frequencies, and uh, we can't do that one. <laughs> um, I couldn't make that sound. But we can, um, we can make the sound of a lot of our frogs. And so instead of carrying electronic devices, I, when I'm in the field, I, I, I make the call of the frog that I'm looking for. And more often than not, they'll, they'll respond. And so, you know, it's great fun. So we've got some great, great sounding frogs. I've got a, a thing called the giant barred river frog, and it's got this beautiful deep voice where it just goes, whoop, you know, really deep, whoop. And if you just stand along the creek where you know these frogs can be and just make these deep sounds, whoop, whoop, sooner, sooner or later the male will respond. Or there's another one that goes, whack, 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 whack. And you just walk around going, wah, wah, wah. And they'll call back to you and you go, okay, there's one over there and there's one over there. It's a great way of doing surveys um, and checking for your frogs. I never would have even thought of something so simple. I, 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 I'll play calls on my phone to try to get some of my male dart frogs to call, which usually works pretty well. But I, I just, I, I can't, it's interesting because some of the species that are around here, with the exception of the American, the American bullfrog, and maybe the spring peeper, they're not that easy to, to mimic. Um, no, that, that, dart frog, that dart frog that's calling, I, I couldn't mimic that. Yeah. We're lucky that most of our frogs we can mimic, and that's, uh, that's, that's where it's – I mean, there are some we possibly can't. They're just not – they're too high-pitched or they do complex patterns. But, yeah, most of them are, have good, good sort of lower middle frequencies that we can use, and that, that's what makes it possible. I like that, and it also puts it in the in the, within the reach of the average person. I guess I could imagine that being a lot of fun for uh, citizen scientists to go out and do a survey by just just calling with their own lips. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, well, we've got a very big national citizen science project, which I'm not not directly involved with. Our our, our major museums run a frog app, a smartphone app, and uh, that's an app where. Uh, free, free to download. It's called Frog ID. You could once again look up and uh, download it, but it's not going to work in your country. So people go out and uh, when they hear a frog, they press the button and it records um, 30 or 60 seconds of the sound. It goes to people in the museum who listen to all the sound and identify the frog and tell the citizen scientist what it was. The app's super intelligent because the, the, the smartphone records the GPS location of the recording and the time. So the museum gets precise information of what frog was calling when and what time and, and what place. And, and the citizen science gets the information back of the list of frogs that 
you know, they're recorded. And and it's a wonderful database, and it's a completely, um, uh, you know, free app, and uh, thousands of people contribute to that um, annually. And it's just a wonderful piece of citizen science, and it uses frog sound as its basic mechanism. That's wonderful. I, I love stuff like that. Well, Michael, is there any other resources or anything that you'd like to add or just mention for the listeners if they're curious about any more of your work or any anyone? I have listeners in Australia as well. If there's anything that my Australian listeners might want to check out or my American listeners or really anyone. Oh, yeah. Uh, if people want to look at um, Conservation Science Group, the University of Newcastle, Conservation Science Group, University of Newcastle, we have a web page. I'm not great on... Um, Twitter and all of those sorts of things. I'm I'm not a new age person. Um, I still use a phone. So um, yeah, look uh, look us up, and if you've got questions, and um, we'd be only too happy to help. Got a very active group of students and postdocs, and um, yeah, we love um, being involved as much as we can. So Dan, thank you very much for the wonderful opportunity. It's just been so good. It's been my pleasure, Michael. I, I want to thank you very much, and uh, it's I, I know. Uh, I want to thank you for your, your patience too. We kind of lost our connection a while earlier, and yeah. uh, things got a bit dicey, but we we we, we toughed it out. The challenges of podcasting. <laughs> so we did. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate your patience. No, yeah. it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. So, I want to thank everyone for checking this episode out. As usual, I learned a lot, and uh, I hope you guys picked up some new information. I think it was a really fascinating episode, and I will catch up with you guys again soon. 